My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. This morning, I want to start off with a, with a question for you. Does anyone here want more? You may wonder, more of what? It's like, well, more of anything. In fact, I just want you to take a moment and just kind of reflect for a moment to see what first bubbles up in your heart when, with this sentence. I want more in my life. And just view that for a moment. Maybe for you, um, what immediately comes to mind is some kind of material good. You want more money, you want more clothes, uh, maybe uh, what you have is not big enough, so you want, you're looking for more house or more car or something like that, something material. Or maybe for you, you fill it with an aspiration. I, I want a more job, I want a better job, or I want a more fulfilling career or more success. Or maybe you fill it with something relational. You want more joy in your marriage. You want more well-behaved kids. Do I have an amen in the congregation? <laughs> you want more friends. Uh, you want more from your church. We just talked about in that spiritual survey. Others, you may approach it through the lens of pleasure. You want more adventure or more thrill. Or maybe on the other side of the spectrum, you want more peace or more satisfaction in life. Or maybe through the lens of character. You want more patience, more kindness, more generosity. Whatever you would fill in that sentence with, you want more. And I would say you want more insatiably. You can't help but want more. Or maybe for you, you don't want necessarily more of something. What comes to your mind is you want something that you're lacking in your life. And this second sentence may, be, may call to you a little more clearly. And that is I want, I want blank. I want, I want a job. I want a child. I, I want a partner. I want an answer to that question I just can't seem to find an answer to. Or I want relief from this thing that's this burden that I've been facing. Or perhaps you sit here this morning and you go blank when it comes to filling in the blank. You have these yearnings, these desires, but you can't quite put your thumb on what it exactly it is you're longing for. All you know is you have this ache that you just, nothing just seems to satisfy. Desire. Desire is an ever-present part of life. 
Even if this, in this moment you can honestly say you're satisfied, that you're, there's nothing that you'd put in that blank. And that's why I would invite you to sit quietly. And if you sit there quietly for long enough, I think something will bubble up. What about, but what about our heart's desire? In fact, desire is absolutely foundational within us. It's something essentially human. Here's how one author, Gerald May, put it. He said, there is a desire within each of us in the deep center of ourselves that we call our heart. We were born with it. It is never completely satisfied and it never dies. We are often unaware of it, but it is always awake. Our true identity, our reason for being is to be found in this desire. Simply put, nothing of human greatness or achievement can be accomplished without desire. And we're not talking mere wishes either. We're talking about the kind of desire you need to overcome the inevitable obstacles, problems, difficulties. And interestingly enough, when you're an outside observer looking at somebody who is, who is following their desire, often it looks irrational. The desire is so strong. In a book called Into Thin Air, mountaineer John Krakauer told the story of an ill-fated attempt by a group of people to reach the summit of Mount Everest. And here's how he described the decision to go after that goal. He said, there were many, many fine reasons not to go. But attempting to climb Everest is an intrinsically irrational act, a triumph of desire over sensibility. We often admire people like that who have such desire that they can overcome obstacles and achieve great things. But desire often brings a dilemma because we have these great desires and yet we also have this sense that we can't quite get what we desire. And in fact, in, this, in, in that book, he talks about this group of people who, who did not achieve their goal. In fact, a few of them died along the way and others had to give up and turn back mere yards from actually standing on top of that goal. Desire opens our hearts to things like disappointment and anxiety and frustration By the way, it it can also lead us to God. Many philosophers down through the ages have pointed to unmet desire as evidence that God exists. Here's how C.S. Lewis put it in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, if I find in myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And indeed, according to the Bible, our desires are meant for God. And in fact, the passage I want to look at today is one of the most lavish invitations from God that's found in the Bible, inviting us to bring our desires to him. And he wants to fulfill them. It comes from the prophet Isaiah, and the invitation goes like this. Is anyone thirsty? Come to him and drink. Even if you have no money, come, take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Why spend your money on food that does not give you strength? Why pay for food that does you no good? Listen to me and you will eat what is good. You will enjoy the finest food. Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen and you will find life. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. I will give you all the unfailing love I promised to David. 
See how I used him to display my power among the peoples. I made him a leader among the nations. You also will command nations you do not know, and peoples unknown to you will come running to obey, because I, the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, have made you glorious. Seek the Lord while you can find him. Call on him now while he is near. Isaiah paints an amazing invitation. It's almost embarrassing in its lavishness. The tone is one of earnest appeal. Again, almost embarrassingly so. There are, in the Hebrew behind this passage, there are 14 imperative verbs. It's just that passion, that earnestness that he has there. A few other things to note. Uh, in, the first, in, in, in the first word that's translated in this come and drink, in, in the Hebrew word behind that, in other places in the, no te- in the Old Testament, it's translated woe. Not like, whoa, dude. You know, not, not that. No, woe as in W-O-E. Woe as in trouble. In other words, Isaiah is not speaking to, uh, to people. These are, and so these words are spoken to people who are in deprivation and need. Not merely people seeking a, a snack or a sip. No, these are people who are dehydrated, who are famished, and have nowhere else to turn. Verse 2 addresses, I believe, the, the natural human impulse to like reach into your pocket in order to meet your own needs. Now, there's a pride that goes with that, right? It's, I could, it's akin to when you get an invitation to go over to somebody's house and immediately you think, what can I bring? It's almost like receiving just a gift is too much, or maybe it's a shame that we don't, we don't think we deserve it, or, or, or we just want to, again, without a pride, provide something for ourselves, lest we be beholden to anyone else. In verse 3, the, the, the Hebrew word behind that, ears wide open, it distinguishes between listening and hearing. Okay, hearing is just a biological function of our, of our ears, right? But listening, no, listening, it involves focus and intent and receptivity. In verses 3 and 4, you notice there's, his, there's language that ties to David, an un, a covenant made with David of unfailing love that now is available. Uh, it goes back to King David, of course, who's the greatest king in the Israelites' history, the one who is called the man after God's own heart. And God made this promise to him that a descendant would always be on the throne. And in fact, a future descendant would fulfill all the promises Available, And that's what he's speaking to there. So it's not only the historical David, but the language points to this future descendant of David. I love verse 5 uh, there because it's this idea that there are these people that you'll command, you don't even know, these nations that'll come to you, you don't even know. Uh, this, to me, is a picture of, of God's generosity that knows no limits. He has resources we don't have a clue about. We tend to think in terms of a, what's called a zero-sum game. You know, what we can see is all there is. Uh, and then we have to kind of like almost compete over the resources. It's like, no, God, God has resources we don't have a clue about. He's master of the universe. And he will provide things we just have no idea about. And so verse 6, come now, now, now is the time. Don't wait around. Don't wait for tomorrow. Don't wait for next year. Come now. The table's set. It's all available. All you have to do is receive the invitation. God welcomes our desires. Not only that, but he promises to meet our desires lavishly. And so I want you to take a moment and just consider your response to that invitation. In other words, what happens inside of you? You hear this lavish promise. Now, some of you, it may provoke that desire. I mean, you're like, yes, please, please, I want it, yes. But for others of us, it provokes what we might call objections. Objections. 
I know that's what it provokes in me. And so I sat with it this week, reading the scriptures, and, and I just wrote down a few of mine that, that, that came to mind as I, and I, as I interact with you know, my own heart as well as, as in my work as a counselor, I interact with people. Uh, and so I just listed some of them here. Maybe you can recognize some of these in your own heart. Uh, first of all, skepticism or disbelief. That, that, prom- that just promise just sounds too good to be true. It can't be real. Or maybe this. I've opened my heart before. And I got burned. I got betrayed. Right? I don't think I'll do that. Or shame. Yeah, it's a wonderful promise, God, but eh, maybe for people who have their life together. I mean, if God really knew what I've done, eh, I don't think he'd give me that invitation. Or that third one, control, or what I call bargaining. That's, this is a sovereignty issue. And that's where it's who gets to decide. I mean, that, that passage there in Isaiah, it's full of metaphors. Uh, and, and we're like, okay, I love the metaphor, God. I love the feel of it. But I get to decide what the metaphor means. I get to decide what I need. And I get to decide how it comes and when it comes. And if it's not quite meeting my expectations, then I'll let you know, right? In other words, I get to decide. That's a control or a sovereignty issue. And we begin bargaining with God with our desires. And then the last one there, uh, impatience. I open my heart, God. Uh, Where are you? Where are you? (laughs) How long do I have to sit here with this open heart? We live in a consumer culture that's designed to, meet, to give us what we want when we want it. We don't like to wait. We hate waiting. And yet in that passage, there is no timeline. God makes the promise. But he gets to decide the when and the how. Again, I've experienced these objections in my own heart. I experience them in a, as I counsel with people. In fact, just, just recently, I, uh, this couple came to me for, for marriage counseling. And, and as is very common, when I first sit down with a couple and I just ask them to tell a bit of their story, uh, what I heard from this couple was basically they, they were able to clearly articulate the expectations they had of the other person and how that, the other partner was not meeting their expectations. Again, very common place to start, and we, we always begin there, and some, some are able to recognize that and move on through that, and this particular couple wasn't. And so, like four sessions in, the, the, the gal came in, and she says, I'm done trying, I'm filing for a divorce. Now, this is a couple that, that I had asked, you know, or, do you believe in the Bible? Is, is, is God a part of the equation? We had covered that at the beginning, right? And so I asked her, I says, what do you think God has to say about that decision? And she says this, she said, I know God wants me to stay married. You know what word came next? But God also wants me to be happy. And then she added this, I don't want to waste any more time not being happy. She had objections. God wasn't coming through in the way that she thought that he should come through or when or how, right? And we all have objections. And when we give in to our objections, we conclude that God is uncooperative or untrustworthy or not even there at all. We conclude that we're on our own to meet our, own need, our needs. And that conclusion becomes the foundation for what the Bible calls idolatry. Idolatry. Idols. Uh, they're not just for, you know, gold images or anything like that. No, an idol is anything we turn to to meet our desires apart from God. That's what an idol is. Anything we turn to to meet our desires apart from God. 
And as a great theologian, John Calvin, noted, our hearts are idle factories. Love that phrase. Our hearts are idle factories because our hearts are constantly offering up ideas of how to meet these insatiable desires that we have in our hearts. It offers big idols. It offers small idols. It doesn't really matter. They're idols. And here's, here's the deal. God is at work rescuing his people from their idols because he knows that he's the only one that can satisfy those cravings, those desires in our hearts. And his rescue is often painful because we cling to our idols with such veracity. Which is why it's important uh, at this point to, to zoom out from Isaiah 55 where that promise is and to remind ourselves where we are in the book of Isaiah as well as where we are in the story of Israel. You know, in many ways, the book of Isaiah is like, it's kind of like the Bible in, a, in, a, in one book. Uh, interestingly, there's 66 books in the Bible. There are 66 chapters in Isaiah. There are, there's one big division in the book of Isaiah. Uh, and then you have this first half and the second half, 39 chapters in the first half, 27 chapters in the second half. Just like there are 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. I find that fascinating. And the themes are somewhat similar as well. The theme of the first 39 chapters in Isaiah, there's a theme of judgment, an emphasis on the absolute sovereignty of God over all the nations. The second 27 chapters, the, 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 the emphasis is on hope, that, that those who trust in God will receive God's lavish mercy and grace through his chosen one. If you're reading through the Bible with us and if you're, as you're in Isaiah in those first 39 chapters, let's just admit that they're hard to read. They're really hard to read. And basically the first 39 chapters, God lays out a, in plain terms where idolatry leads us. It leads us to defeat, to pain, to slavery, to missing out on God's goodness. For the nation of Israel, it meant being invaded by a powerful neighboring country and losing their independence. Their land and their cities was stripped of everything valuable and everything meaningful them, to them was taken away. The majority of the nation were marched hundreds of miles across the desert and then had to live in a foreign land. Even after 70 years, when they were able to return to their land, they never regained their independence. They never regained the status and wealth that they once had. And this not only affected their standard of living, this also affected their understanding of God. Because when they read their scriptures, they read about this powerful creator, God, who, who handpicked them to be his special people. And now that God seemed distant, absent, or at best impotent to meet their needs or to fulfill his promises. So you're reading through these first 39 chapters, and by the time you arrive at chapter 40, uh, we're very tempted to despair. <laughs> Is there any hope at all? And then beginning in verse 40, it, it, or chapter 40, it shifts. It shifts to a theme of hope. The, Isaiah related to their pain as a disoriented people. He related to their pain of being in a difficult situation, yearning for anyone, someone just to rescue them. And then he spoke into the situation with words of hope centered on the promises of God. In chapters 52 through 54, Isaiah provides one of the longest, most descriptive, uh, descript, descriptive introductions to that future leader, that, that future descendant of David promised. In chapter 52, God through Isaiah called this future leader, my servant. 
Isaiah then in chapter 53 described how that servant would suffer to pay for the penalty of their sins. No longer would their sins be held against them. No longer would their sins keep them from, the prom- from the God's promises. And then in chapter 55, he offers that lavish invitation based on the work, based on what was done by the suffering servant. And all they had to do was come. Come now, come. Well, that's almost all they had to do. Because the invitation to come implies something first. And that is to turn. Because if, if you're going after an idol, if you're going after find satisfaction in an idol, you need to turn and return to receive the invitation. And that's where Isaiah goes next in his writing. He says this, he says, let the wicked change their ways and banish the very thought of doing wrong. Let them turn to the Lord that he may have mercy on them. Yes, turn to our God for he, I love this, will forgive generously. Again, they have that lavish heart of God. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. My ways are far beyond anything you can imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. The rain and the snow come down from the heavens and stay on the ground to water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer and bread for the hungry. It is the same with my word. I send it out, and it always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to, and it will prosper everywhere I send it. In order to come to God, they would need to turn from their idols. This meant acknowledging God as sovereign. He is the one who rules over all. He's the one who is uncontainable, unconquerable, unchangeable. He gets the last word, and his word reigns supreme. He gets the last word whether or not they could see it, whether or not they could understand it, whether or not they liked it. And this is a fork in the road decision that everyone comes to. You cannot escape it. God's ways, your ways. God's thoughts, your thoughts. God's word, your word. You cannot access the blessings of God by following your own way. It cannot be done. The only way to get in on the invitation of God is to surrender your way And by faith, get on God's way. It's a binary choice. We cannot escape it. But my friends, it's not a surrender to despair. It's a surrender to hope. God's heart for us is good. He wants to be generous. He wants to offer a flourishing life. We get this picture of what he wants through a series of metaphors at the close of this chapter. This is what he wants for us. He says, you will live in joy and peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song and the trees of the field will clap their hands. Where once there was thorns, cypress trees will grow. Where nettles grew, myrtles will sprout up. These events will bring great honor to the Lord's name. They will be an everlasting sign of his power and love. God is good. He is generous. He wants to share his goodness with us so that we can share in his peace and his joy. And even more than that, all creation is waiting for the restoration of all things that will come when God restores his people and fulfills his promises. Now, Isaiah, 
Isaiah wrote these words with a prophetic voice. He spoke them to the Jewish people living about 800 years before Christ. He spoke them for them, but through the Spirit, like we read in that first verse, all that we read together, that it's more than just a man speaking, it's God's Spirit through him speaks beyond that nation and that people to all people of all time so that all his people may find hope. And in fact, his words anticipated the events that transpired when a man named Jesus of Nazareth began his ministry. And Jesus began his ministry by quoting from Isaiah. We find this in Luke chapter 4. It says, When he, meaning Jesus, came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. The prophetic word was fulfilled. What Jesus or what Isaiah described in this suffering servant, Jesus walked. He lived it. He was that promised one. The one who would bring God's promises to fruition. The one through whom God's people could access a flourishing life. And when Jesus spoke and when he taught, he used language that echoed the metaphors that we find in Isaiah chapter 55. When he was at the, speaking to a woman at the well in John chapter 4, he said this to her. He said, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. In John 6, he replied, he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds in John 7, Anyone who is thirsty, come to me. Anyone who believes in me, come and drink. For the scripture declares rivers of living water will flow from his heart. We hear the echo of Isaiah 55, 6, when Jesus taught this in Matthew 7. Keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Now I hope I've done my job of provoking your desire. And I hope I've done my job of building a case for how much God wants you to bring your desire to him, to find the fulfillment of it, and to be willing to wait for him to fulfill it, even when it seems like it's taking longer than you want. And what I want to do next is I want to offer just some practical ways to do this, to put this into practice. I'm going to go through it rather quickly, but but it's in the notes that you have available here in the auditorium and the notes that are available online. First thing we need to do is we need to identify our our idols. We need to face it honestly. This exists. This is true of me. Uh, And I want want you to know that even good things become idols. Even good things. So I have some diagnostic questions there for you. What do you believe is absolutely necessary for your happiness? Now this may be something that you already have that you cling to a little too tightly. 
It may be something that you don't have in your life and you're going after it with a little too much intensity. Or maybe the second one there, what would devastate you if you lost it? Not what would be sad or, or mourning. No, this is about like my, uh, my life would be utterly destroyed if I didn't have this. And again, it could be a person, could be a place, could be a thing, it could be, right, anything. What would you absolutely be devastated by? Or on a, maybe on a smaller, more daily basis here, you could ask, when, when you're bored, what do you turn to? When you're angry, what do you turn to? When you're exhausted. In other words, when you are in a place of need, where do you go with your need? We need, to, we need to name our idols or the things we're tempted to turn to. Second thing, we cry out to God. God, I want you more than this. I want you more. I want you more. Yes, I want this. I want you more. The third thing, we practice the spiritual discipline of detachment. Okay, that's maybe not a word that you've heard before, uh, but I like how this is uh, Gerald May, this author in his great book on addictions. He, he, he defined it this way. He said, detachment is the word used in spiritual traditions to describe freedom of desire. Not freedom from desire, but freedom of desire. An authentic spiritual understanding of detachment devalues neither desire nor the objects of desire. Instead, it aims at correcting, and here's the key phrase, one's own anxious grasping in order to free oneself for committed relationship with God. And we need to practice this regularly because our hearts are idol factories. And so this, uh, a practical way to do this, just posture with your posture. When you pray, maybe, maybe in the morning, is you have your list of idols and they're just there. They're constantly tempting us, right? And just take your hands, open hands, and, and, and say, God, I want you more than this. God, I want you more than this. And to practice that with our posture. Another way to do it, to combine it with some other spiritual disciplines that exist for this very reason, to free up our hearts. The discipline of fasting, which is I set, I, I set aside something good for a period of time in order to, kind of, to test my heart, to, to see what my heart does without it. Um, and, and then to worship God with that desire. Or, this, or, or generosity is another one uh, where, where we take something, we have something good, uh, and, but it can be too good for us. And so we give it away. Or we let somebody borrow it. I, I think of some of us who maybe are a little too attached to our cars, okay? Maybe you're like this and you have this car and it's a wonderful thing. And in fact, you bathe it every Sunday. Uh, you, you, you wipe it with a diaper. Uh, you, you, you caress it, right? You, if, if, if you don't do that, you have a neighbor that does that, right? You know what I'm talking about. That, 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 that car is a little too important. And so you let somebody borrow it. You let your teenager drive it. Yeah, and that tests your heart, right? Do I want this too much? Okay, and what we're after here is what C.S. Lewis wonderfully captures here. He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God. That's what we're after, that, that everything else, it's not that they're not good things, they're wonderful things when they're gifts from God and we enjoy them from the hand of God. The fourth thing, this isn't as much a step as it is a warning, that understanding that opening your heart to desire also opens it to disappointment. That's the reality. Brent Curtis in his book puts it this way, desire often feels like an enemy because it wakes longings that cannot be fulfilled in the moment. Awakened souls are often disappointed, but our disappointment can lead us onward, actually increasing our desire and lifting it toward its true passion. Dis disappointment, I don't like to feel disappointed, nobody does, but it can serve us well. 
to, to actually stoke our desire and then we get to, once again, can direct it toward this God who loves us more than we can know. And so with the, the time that I have remaining, I just wanted just to, to open my world. I always think of just me first, me, me, share a bit of my story in this. And in particular, a particular Isaiah 55 moment that came uh, not long ago. Uh, first, a bit of a backstory. When I was in college, uh, Jesus transformed my life in a way that just tr- completely changed the orientation of my life. And, and my purpose became, I want to I know God and I want to make him known wherever I am. I mean, that just became my life purpose. When I graduated an engineering degree, as I shared a few sermons ago, started career life at the Boeing Airplane Company, and my desire was to be the the best engineer possible, but also to see that as part of extended place where I extend God's kingdom. And and I did that for a number of years. But there was this desire, this this ache I couldn't quite place. And my wife and I, we would talk about it, we'd pray about it in it. And it became clear that that God was inviting us to, to serve him full time. Didn't quite know where that was, and we just sat with the open hearts and desire in it, and, and our hearts were, to, to, were drawn toward a ministry of serving people in their marriages. It was a passion for ours. We wanted to have the best marriage possible, and we wanted to help others with that. And so it, it meant leaving my career that, that I'd trained for, that was paid pretty well and all of that. Uh, it meant asking people, sharing our passion with people and asking them to donate to an organization on our behalf. And it also meant leaving the beautiful Pacific Northwest and moving to Little Rock, Arkansas. Okay, desire, there's, over, there's obstacles to overcome, right? So we moved there and we, and we served for, for 10 years on this ministry and there's lots of stories there, lots of wonder, lots of pain, lots of trouble and all of that. Uh, but, but in that season also, we started attending this church and this church turned upside down our picture of what church it could be. Not only in calling us to worship more passionately, but also to use our gifts and passions to be a blessing on behalf of the city, to be a church for the city. Now, that's something, again, as Keith mentioned earlier, this is something that we kind of take for granted here at Sunrise as well, is that kind of church. But then I had no clue that a church could do that. I mean, it just kind of transformed our understanding of a church. It also helped me see this idea of picture of being a pastor. Now, that actually awakened a long, latent desire, a call I didn't even know, I didn't even remember was there because it goes all the way back to my teen years when I had this kind of like, I wonder, or, I mean, it was just one of those almost a passing, fleeting thing, but it connected uh, in, in, in ways that I never imagined because I was this engineer, you know, I, I don't like people, you know, how could I be a pastor? Oh, I like you. No, I wasn't talking about you. Uh, I don't like being up and being in front of people. I don't like being a center of attention, all of that. I mean, I, that's not me. And yet... It awakened something to the point where we were willing to, to move from Arkansas to Colorado. I know that's not a sacrifice, but, but late in our late 30s, we had four kids in a teen year or in our in elementary years. You know, it was, a, it was a huge step of faith for us. And for three years, we went to seminary there in Denver. Wonderful years that then birthed this call to pastor. And we answered the call to come to here in Hillsboro. It was a different church here in the, Hills, in the Hillsboro area. It was actually a, a small church. It was only two years old at the time, still kind of in that fledgling stage, still trying to kind of get things together. And we stepped in with whole hearts. I mean, we just, we wanted to, we were so passionate about being there, so excited. About a year and a half into our time there, the lead pastor, the founding pastor, announced that he was going to resign and move back to Texas. And so we were, once again, now we're back to this idea of desire. There had been this kind of this question in my soul for a long time. Do I have what it takes to lead, to be a point leader? And it was still, there was these desires, but there was also these fears, right? And so I wrestled for about a month of prayer and we decided, could put my hat in the ring. And then about several months later, um, they said, yes, we want you to come lead the church. 
And again, stepping into something that's calling with a full heart, like, okay, God, let's go. And that is when the trouble started. Problem after problem. Conflict after conflict. It was just, I mean, unconfessed sin that bubbled up in the heart of a, you know, that came out of the light and key leader in the church that just, with devastating consequences. I could go on on that, but that's just the exterior. In here, there was a war going on with anxiety, with fear, with panic attacks, with going up on the edge of depression, of having this uh, anger and grief and sorrow, all this stuff like going all around inside. And at probably the lowest moment, if not the lowest, one of the lowest moments a few years back, was in time of a February time frame, which is, I mean, you got that seasonal affect thing too, right? February is a dark time, right? And that was symbolic for me. Just keeping my heart open at all felt like a daily work. And that is when I received an invitation that is an Isaiah 55 invitation to come, to drink. Didn't come through a seminar, didn't come through a church service, didn't come through prayer, didn't come through reading my Bible. It came through an invitation from a friend to play golf at Bandon Dunes on the southern Oregon coast. Now, before you judge me, a couple of things you need to know. Hold that picture. Take it off, please. Take the picture off. Thank you. Before you judge me, okay, you need to know a couple of things. Uh, number one you need to know is that uh, when it comes to money, I'm not just thrifty, I'm cheap. Okay, I'm cheap. I don't like to spend money. In fact, I will tell you, I have an unhealthy attachment to money. I grew up in a money insecure home, and, and I get security about seeing my bank account grow, not shrink. I like that. I like it too much. And so over the years, I've learned a couple of practices that kind of guard, seek to guard my heart from that idol because it's always sitting there. One is to regularly practice tithing. I can tell you for as long as I have been a worker, I've never given less than 10% of my income. In fact, many years we give a lot more than that as a way of guarding against my desire to hoard. Okay? A second thing that I do is on occasion spend money lavishly for good reason. Lavishly. Now, that may not be a problem for you, but that is a problem for me because, again, I, I cling to it a little too tightly. Uh, and, and so that's a practice. Now, I can actually build a biblical case for that. It's what a spiritual discipline called feasting, uh, but that's another sermon for another time. It, it, it's real. So back to Bandon Dunes. Okay, for anybody who loves golf, Bandon Dunes is Mecca. I mean, it is a place of worship. Okay, but remember, I'm cheap. And playing in golf abandoned dunes is not cheap, not in any way. So I received this invitation, and I'll tell you, a war started in my heart. I felt all this anxiety, and I had all these thoughts about how that's, that's a poor stewardship, it's a waste of money, uh, you don't have that, you know, all, this, all these things, right? I mean, just this war going on. But deeper than that, in a quiet, simple place in my heart, I wanted to say Yes. And it was, through my, it was actually through my beautiful bride that, that tipped me over the edge. I'm, I'm, I'm sharing all this, I don't know about this, you know, I'm whining and complaining about this war. And she's like, I think you should go. It was just that simple. I think you should go. Really? And so as a step of faith, I stepped into that moment to give my heart to it. And I'll tell you, the goodness of God was lavish. It was beautiful. I mean, it's there. The coast is always beautiful, right? But to play there, uh, you know, the, the beauty, the companionship of good friends, uh, the lack of the pressure on that. Uh, we played in April, and there was no rain. That was a minor miracle in and of itself. 
And as I gave my heart fully to that, I had an extra gift. This is, this is the part that was just amazing. Is I played the best 54 holes of golf in my entire life. I mean, it was, it was utterly amazing. So now I want to put the picture up here. So that picture may mean, not to, may mean nothing to you. But I look at this, and it is a picture of the lavish goodness of God. God provided good thing to me in a way that I didn't deserve. I hadn't earned it. I couldn't arrange it. In fact, by st- I had to step into it in faith because I didn't know by even as paying, you know, even because I paid all the money doesn't mean guarantee it's going to go well, right? It could go incredibly poorly. But that particular time, for God's reasons, it went very well. And I experienced God's kindness and generosity and loyal love, not just for humanity overall, but for me. He knew my heart. He knew what I needed. Having that experience it and receiving it from God as a generous gift helped my soul tremendously. But you need to know, it also opened my heart to disappointment because it only lasted for a weekend. And I still had to go back and nothing had changed. In fact, I had to go back to even more problems, more struggle, more loss, more disappointment. And yet now, I had an oasis in my heart where a a hungry, thirsty man came and ate, and it was good. My friends, Jesus, Jesus was and is the suffering servant Isaiah talked about. He was and is. He came and he lived the life you and I long to live but can't. He died the death you and I deserve. He rose from the dead so that he can freely offer the lavish love of God. It's a free gift. All you need to do is turn. Turn from wherever else, wherever else you think you need to go to get your needs met and then surrender to the goodness of God. Would you pray with me? God, you are so, so good. And I just want to pause knowing the Spirit of God is here. And I just want to walk through those steps again. I just want to give you a moment to identify an idol. Again, it could be a very good thing that you want too much. I want you to give you a moment to invite you to say, God, I want you more than this. You have more to offer me than this. And I want you to hold that desire for that thing. And I want you to hold on the goodness of it. And then I want you to sit there with it and just say, God, I want you more. I believe you. I want to turn for you. I want to surrender to you. And maybe you're sitting here and you've never done that at all, surrendered to the person of Jesus, surrendered to the suffering servant. Maybe for the first time this morning you want to do that. You know, say, I've been looking long and hard. I've been wandering far and wide. My friend, today, no matter how far you've wandered, no matter how far you've gone, you can turn and God is there. Jesus is ready there. Welcome you. And you can turn and return and find him there waiting for you. Spirit of God, would you come and meet with us in the way only you can and satisfy our souls. We pray believing and hoping in Jesus' name. Amen.